Welcome back, beloved listeners. This is Octavia's Parables. This season, we are reading Octavia E. Butler's Wild Seed from her Pattern Master series. I am your co-host, Adrian Marie Brown. I'm Toshi Regan. And we're on chapter two. Uh, Chapter two. And before we jump into the summary, Toshi, do you have any announcements? Uh, I don't have any announcements. <laughs> yeah, that's great. I'm, 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 I'm here. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Mm. I have one announcement, which is that my first work of fiction is out in the world. It's called Grievers, and it is a novella about grief and black people in Detroit. And it's available wherever you get books. And I'm quite enjoying having fiction in the world and starting to get feedback from it. And yeah, just loving that creative experience. So inviting you into it with me. I think that's all I've got. Yeah, yeah. That's a lot. It's huge. We are are very happy for this. It took me forever, so I'm just like, yay. Um, yeah, it's been out like a month, basically, so I'm, I'm geeked. Um, let's get into it. Let's get into this story, chapter two. Want to give us a summary? Yes, I would love to. We are, we are about to get going. Um, yeah. <laughs> we're about to journey with these two with these two people or these two spirits or these two everlasting beings. And, um, Anyan was made her decision to travel with Doro. She's, she doesn't have any doubts about it, but she is, and you know, what you're hearing is my doubts about it. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Cause I'm like, Oh really? <laughs> but, yeah. um, but I don't know what else she's supposed to do. Because I think yeah. she really is clearly understanding that she is with with someone or something that is very vast and different. So she has made her decision and um, she's expressed no more doubts about leaving with him. And she says she must be the one to guide them um, past her villages. And she is uh, traveling as a young man. And she's pointing out how she has set up these villages all around her so that no strangers can reach without paying. And she says to him that he was fortunate to reach um, without being stopped. Or she thinks maybe her people were fortunate that he was able to reach her without being seen because there would certainly be a lot of um, of dead folks if they had tried it with Doro. So she also reflects on um, their night of, I don't know, sex I won't, I'm not going to call it love making, but sex mm. and, um, and says, uh, you are a good man. And then he is actually moved by this compliment and he's surprised by how much it pleased him that she would say that he was good. And, um, he asked about how she had built everything. And she talks about how all of her sons, except for one helped her build, um, the place that she's in. And she told them that she needed a place where she could make her medicines and everybody started to help except for this one son who was wealthy and arrogant and um, used to being listened to even when he was saying nonsense. 
So she's like, she's pretty sure he will be very happy that she is gone. And she's pretty sure that many of her people um, will be glad that she is gone. But she points out how much her existence had brought wealth to her villages and helped support people and that she had like a thriving community because people were very much protected by her. Mm-hmm. So she is, she, I don't know, she doesn't seem like she has a lot of feelings about that. She gets uh, some yams and she puts them in her basket and they're off. They're going into a little, little section and she's showing him where the gods are. And he's like, wait, where are these things over here? And she's like, yeah. And he's trying to be careful because he doesn't want to upset people and their gods and stuff. But she's like, yeah, these these are my mothers. And, and he says in English, I'm getting careless. And she doesn't know that language. Mm-hmm. And so she's just like, what are you saying? And then he says, I'm sorry, I've just been away from your people too long. And uh, she makes it really clear. She's like, well, this, you know, it doesn't matter. These are these are there for other people to see. And she's like, I'm, I must lie a little even here. Um, mm. And he says, no more. So this town will finally think that she is dead. And she says at night when they see like the trees move, they'll say they saw her spirit. And she thinks a shrine with spirits will frighten them less than the, oh no, he says this, a shrine with spirits will frighten them less than a living woman. And so he gets led through the compound and they begin their long trek over a maze of footpaths, um, so narrow that they could walk only in a single file between the tall trees. And I love this description on Anyang Wu carrying her basket on her head and her machete seethed at her side and her bare feet and Doros made almost no sound on the path. And every time she sensed that somebody might be coming, she just moves off of the path and then she moves back on. And um, they see different people, you know, men carrying hoes and machetes. And um, they were in the middle of her town, surrounded by villages, and no Europeans would ever recognize this town. However, since most of the time, there were no dwellings in sight. But on his way to her, Doro had stumbled across villages Hmm. and across one large compound after another and either slipped past them or walked past boldly as though he had like legitimate business. And no one challenged him. But if they had... He's thinking what would happen to these people and um, because he would have to take more bodies and he was trying not to do that. So Mm -hmm. eventually they um, they left her land. And this is like it's not really a pause, but it's a shift. Now she's not leading, you know, and at first she was like trying to do this, but they had to like use their machetes to get through the density of the forest. And so everything got very Um, Very, very hard. She went to one place that she knew of because her daughters lived there now. And she was telling him about her daughter who had married a handsome and strong and lazy man. Um, (laughs) And then then run away to a much less imposing man who had some ambition. He listened for a while and asked, how many of your children live to adulthood? Um, And she was like, everybody, you know, and she's very Mm. proud of that. Um, they were all strong and well and and didn't have like, you know, things wrong with them. And then she uses the term forbidden things wrong with them. 
and children with forbidden things wrong with them, like twins, for instance, and children born feet first, or children with almost any deformity, children born with teeth. These children were thrown away. Doral had gotten some of his best stock from earlier cultures who, for one reason or another, um, put infants out to die. So he's like, you've had 47 children. He's in disbelief by this. And all of them were perfect. And she was like, well, perfect in their bodies. And they all survived. Um, They are my people's children. Perhaps some of them and their descendants should come with us after all. So he says that. And when he says that, Anyanwu stops and she is not here for that. And it's like, I wrote on the page, nope, 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 nope. That's right. Yeah. Don't even think about it. She's like, you. Back the fuck up off my kids. Yeah. Get away. You will not trouble my children. She said it quietly. And he stares down at her and he's still not bothered (laughs) to make, you know, he's just, he's just like, God, I don't know. The shrug was made for Doro. Yeah, like on the, the biggest, most epic things that we would just be astonished by. He just, uh, you know, he sees yeah. that she got angry and that she spoke to him as though he were one of her children. Yeah. And she did not. She didn't. She's like, she doesn't know who I am. But she says, I'm here. You have me. And then he says, do I? And she says, as much as any man could. And this is a, a stop for him because she's not like challenging him. But he realizes that she was telling him that she was all his. She was not telling him that he was her property. She was just saying, like, for the small part of myself that yeah. I would give to a man, you have that. Yeah. And, you know, that's not what he was thinking at all. So no. he's, he realizes, like, they have a communication gap of epic proportions because that's not, that's yep. not what he's about. And, um, and so... <laughs> So he's like, let's go on. and uh, But she didn't move. And she says, you have something to tell me. And he says, your children are safe, safe Anyanwu. And then, like, in his thought, he's like, for the moment. Oof. And she turned and led on, and Daryl followed. He was like, I need to get her with a child quickly. Um, because he realizes he can't get her to do nothing without her having a baby that she needs to protect. And he can't kill her. And if he abducted any of her descendants, she would no doubt, you know, make him kill her. So his his decision is to get her with a kid as quickly as possible so that he can control her. <laughs> Where have we heard this before? Like, Reproductive systems and things. Oh, wow. I just wrote Texas in my notes. <laughs> so I was like, we're going to talk about this. I definitely feel you on that one. So they are moving through this space. Everything is is luxurious and, and deep and dense. And then streams become a problem. And I just kind of can't imagine this. Like you're just people walking in and just coming upon huge streams. And the streams would interrupt the footpaths. And so local people have built like logs and things like that. So they literally are like walking, 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 walking. We see a stream and then they have to go and chop some wood, build a bridge Walk over the stream. We're not ready. We're not, not ready. ready. We're not no. ready. <laughs> like, I would just be wet. <laughs> I would be like, ooh, stream. <laughs> I guess Jesus did Which not is... mean for me to go this way. No. Jesus. <laughs> I thought about something else. Um, 
Doral was having to be very, very careful in this dangerous terrain because, you know, he is not one for like experiencing pain. This is what I realized is that he thinks something's going to happen to him. He panics and right away he switches bodies and she's the only body near him. Yeah. He is being very careful not to hurt himself so that he doesn't lose her. And so this is all dangerous, dangerous. I don't think Anyamu is really aware of how much she is facing her death just walking next to this man who if he trips he's going to jump into her body so he uh he discovered that he would not have to steal food when he was with her uh, once the two yams were roasted and eaten she found food everywhere each day as they traveled she filled the basket with fruit and nuts and roots and whatever she could find that was edible um, she threw stones with the speed and force of a sling and brought down birds and small animals At the end, there was always a hearty meal. If a plant was unfamiliar to her, she tasted it and sensed within herself whether or not it was poison. Hmm. Um, She ate several things she said were poison, though none of them seemed to harm her, but she never gave him anything other than good food. He ate whatever she gave him, trusting her abilities. And when one small cut on his hand became infected, she, she gave him even more reason to trust. And she is like this, uh, an incredible healer. And she was able to, uh, oh, she says this. She says, you you should have told me that you were hurt because he yeah. didn't. And so his his whole like situation got infected. And she's like, you, you know, you suffering like you, you see me over here, like, you know, knocking things out the air and cooking dinner and everything else. <laughs> and you just going to have a cut on your hand and let it get infected and nasty. But she healed his hand. She bit it. And then she like had something in her mouth and then she just put it back on it and then just voila, healing somebody. He also describes that she turns inward and it's almost like she is creating like from her body, like whatever it is that is needed to heal his hand. And then she spits it out and puts it on the sore. And he says it's very, 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 very painful. But then the wound began to heal. And it feels like that she's able to learn things just, you know, almost by ingesting them. Or is I really wish she lived around the corner. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, <laughs> yes. Yeah. You know, Anyangu, she didn't tell Dora that she could jump all but the widest of the rivers they had to cross. Um, she thought at first that he might guess because he he'd seen the strength of her hands but she you know she hasn't told him everything about herself she stayed uh silent because she feared that he too could leap the gorges though in doing so he might leave his body behind and so this is good great i you know we're starting to see where she is figuring out like who he is and what his particular what her particular danger in being close to him is She's making herself womanly for him at night, and he never had to ask her to do this. She did it because she wanted to, and because in spite of her doubts and fears, he pleased her very much, very much. She went to him as she had gone to her first husband, a man for whom she had cared deeply for, Mm -hmm. Um, and Doro treated her as much as a first husband had. So they're getting it on, and they're doing this whole journey of walking through the day and being together at night he still has given her no proof of the power he has claimed 
no proof that her children would be in danger from other than any, you know, any other ordinary man if she managed to escape. Yet she continued to believe him for her children's sake. She had to stay with him at least until she had proof one way or another. So she followed him wondering whether it would be like finally being married to a man she could neither escape or outlive. And that's just a big thing she has never experienced. And it's so interesting because when you, you know, it's only one chapter that's happened before, but something about that chapter makes her life feel so solid. And so like in a practice. And so, you know, it makes her seem so grounded. And then this chapter starts to like expose what she hasn't had, what That's right. what she what's not available to her and takes her out of a comfort zone. And so they were in the lowlands now, passing through water country, and Doro got some disease and coughed and coughed and Anyangwu got Anyangwu got a fever but drove it out of herself as soon as she sensed it. And there was enough misery to be had without being sick. So she is she <laughs> She is so remarkable. I really wish yes. I had that skill where I'm like, ooh, I can sense I a half a fever. Do you? I think about ooh. it all the time. I want, I'm, I'm trying to work on that. I'm more the other <laughs> to direction. Be I'm like trying to work on it. Like, especially during COVID, I'm more like the <laughs> other direction. Like, I'm like, ooh, I, I you know, ooh, I was five feet from somebody. They're like, am I feeling okay? Yeah. <laughs> like, no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Every like how many times I was like, oh my god, I don't feel good. I definitely um, come from a long line of like hypochondriac adjacent people, uh-uh. so I'm like, if I could <laughs> fix everything, I could feel that would be remarkable. Mm-mm-mm. So um, this is starting to get familiar where they are for Doro, and so he points out that there's a river not far ahead, and he's still being sick and he says I have an arrangement with people at the riverside town and they will they will take us the rest of the way and she's very alarmed by this you know strangers she doesn't want to be anywhere with strangers and he tries to tell her that she's the stranger Um, but she doesn't need to worry these people know him and you know he's brought gifts and everything's gonna be fine and she's like but what about you in this body? Cause like, this is not how you left and what, you know, what about it? And he's like, they're going to know. Um, and she, yeah. and she's just like, but how? And he's like, they, they will know. They like, they will know I am not the body I wear. And this is a really super powerful distinction in terms of like how she is going to come to understand this person, yeah. this being. And she was just like, how? Like, you know, she doesn't she doesn't want to talk about his changing because she knows changing for him equals killing. And she's she has tried to, like, cure him and keep him healthy because she doesn't want him to kill more people. Hmm. She wants to know, like, if you know, how are people going to be able to hear you if you're like a different person? How are they going to be able to know you if you're a different person? And he just says, when you hear my voice, you will know me. That's all. And she's asking him question, will it be the same voice? And he's like, no. And she's like, well, then how? And he's like, Anyanwu. And he looks at her and he's like, I am telling you, you will know. So he don't want to talk about it anymore. And she keeps quiet because that really shocks him. And they arrive to this village and... She felt very exposed and she felt helpless among people so alien and she walked really close behind him. 
and mm. there right away there's just a conflict and the person that knows him the person that he's always dealt with has died and now his son has showed up and his son is like I'm a, I'm the man now and you're going to have to deal with me and so they get into it and the son is like playing with fire basically but he thinks if he wins this battle, then it'll prove to all of the people that he's the man now. He'll get great respect. And then Anyanwu was just like, no, 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 no. Did you tell him you had like, you know, all of these gifts and everything to give him? And he's like, yeah, but he's just seeing my empty hands and he doesn't mm. want to believe me. And so Anyanwu was just like, this is not going to go well. And so there's people around and there's children around and Doro steps past the man and jumps into one of the children and like around seven years old and his body fell almost on top of the boy but the child jumped out of the way in time then he knelt on the ground and took Doro's machete people were beginning to react as the boy stood up and leaned on the machete the sounds of their questioning voices and their gathering around almost drowned out the child's voice when he spoke to the young man almost the child spoke calmly, quietly in his own language, but as Anyanwu heard him, she thought she would scream al- scream aloud. The child was Doro. There was no doubt of it. Doro's spirit had entered the child's body, and what happened to the child's spirit? She looked at the body lying on the ground, then she went to it, turned it over, and it was dead. What have you done? she said to the child. The man knew what his arrogance could cost, Doro said, and his voice was high and childlike. There was no sound of the man Doro had been. Anyanwu did not understand what she was hearing, what she was recognizing in the boy's voice. Keep away from me, Doro told her. Stay with the body until I know how many others of his household this fool was sacrificed to his arrogance. She wanted nothing more than to keep away from him. She wanted to run home and try to forget. She had ever seen him. She lowered her head and closed her eyes, fighting panic. There was shouting around her, but she hardly heard it. Intent on her own fear, she paid no attention to anything else until someone knocked her down. Mm. Ah, And then someone seized her roughly, and she realized she was to pay for the death of the child. And she thrust her attacker away from her and leapt to her feet, ready to fight. That's enough, Doro shouted, and then more quietly, do not kill him. So this is the first time she really got to see him in action. And now she understands or is starting to understand what's what's going on, like what is going to happen and how they're going to how they're going to get through every situation. So they get through this whole situation in this house and they eventually end up um, having to to canoe themselves to their next place. But she wants to know everything. You know, why did you kill this child? She says to warn this young fool. And <laughs> he said, hitting the chest of his lean new body. The boy was the son of a slave and no great loss to the household. So he's taken, he's taken everything. He's taken yeah. two bodies And he's like, I need to let them know, like, who I am. And murder is is regular. And murder is not regular for Anyanwu. Like, it's a big line to cross. 
and um, she can't really make sense of like, oh, this is the person I just walked away with and this is how easy it is. And maybe she's sensing that whatever way she thought she could like try to protect this, keeping him healthy, you know, that she, that really keeping him healthy only meant that he would not take her body. It actually will not be a way of keeping anybody else safe because for him, having a body doesn't just have to do with what shape the body's in. That's right. You know, it's what's on his agenda. So Mm -hmm. beyond the, so they're in this compound and they're, they're about to go and she was certain there would be more killing, but Doro spoke to the men because there were these men around the compound. And she mm. now is just starting to get um, get very worried about like how many people are going to get killed just for them to get any place. That's and right. he tells them that, you know, listen, we're just going to take this boat and we're going to get we're going to get where we have to go. They're moving. He's paddling. She is still like, you should not have killed the child. And he's pointing out like your own people kill children you know, for different reasons. So like, why mm-hmm. is she so um, hung up on that? And he's like, killing children is wasteful. Who knows what useful adults they might have grown into, but still sometimes a child must be sacrificed. And she thought of her sons and their children and knew positively that she had been right to get Dora away from them. Dora would mm-hmm. not have hesitated to kill some of them to intimidate others. Mm-hmm. Um, her descendants were ordinarily well able to take care of themselves. But they could not have stopped Doro from killing them, from walking about obscenely clothed in their flesh. What could stop such a being? A spirit. He was a spirit no matter what he said. He had no flesh of his own. Not for the first time in 300 years, Anyama wished she had gods to pray to, gods who would help her. But she had only herself and the magic she could perform with her own body. What good was this against a being who could steal her body away from her? And what would he feel if he had decided to sacrifice her? Annoyance? Regret? She looked at him and was surprised to see he was smiling. Chapter two, y'all. I'm like, you. This, this chapter reveals so much mm. about... Um, survival and what we think I think of as evil you know I think so often it's like oh it's the willful going out to cause harm but I feel like this character of Doro is actually the essence of it it's like Mm. other human life matters so little to me that it means nothing like I'm just focused on what it is I'm trying to do and I think you can do so much more harm with that idea so there's a lot of questions for this chapter And the first question I have, because the relationship between these two is never simple. And anytime I try to like be like, oh, it's just this, it's just that, like Mm -hmm. the next sentence will throw that into uh, complexity. So I want to ask which aspects of their relationship are transactional? And are there other dynamics that you can name about their relationship? Because it continues to come back to the transactional. You know, they're always talking about lives, bodies, death, territory, power. And yet, there's all these other layers. Mm-hmm. But I, I am always curious, are any of the other layers beyond the transaction? Can they ever actually get beyond the transaction? 
Can sex make someone look like a good person? <laughs> Ooh, why, are you, why are you talking? Why are you talking? I thought that I should ask that. <laughs> um, <laughs> because oh my god, I just love that that you know I just can. <laughs> Oh this is God. the part that I'm like, I really feel like I can see this one, this moment in my mind where she, mm-hmm. you know, she wakes up and she's got that, that thing that happens to your face after a good night of, of getting mm-hmm. it in. And she's just kind of all, you know, turned out and she's just like, you're, you're a good man, you know? And I think there's something like our bodies, our minds, our spirits do when we have that kind of sexual connection and satisfaction with someone that's like... And I don't know that it's even dishonest. You know, it's just like I can see the part of you that is good, right? (laughs) But can sex actually make someone look like a good person who's not? Has that happened to you? Have you had that experience (laughs) before? Um, I know I have. And (laughs) I also think I've been that. You know, like I think sometimes sex that I've had with people has made them be like, oh, you're like an angel or something, you know? And I'm just like, no, still human, just great at that, (laughs) Um, you know, but flawed and I'm not necessarily going to be here tomorrow, (laughs) you know? Like there's, I definitely feel like I've gone through phases of my life of sexual immaturity um, Mm -hmm. and and dealing in that way. Anything you want to... Yeah, because I think it's so interesting, too, because she has such an incredible relationship to her body. Like her body is not, you know, we will discover all of its possibilities and everything as we keep journeying. But right away, we understand that she can create inside of herself, you know, a universe unto itself. So, yes, I wonder what that even means, you know, because when she's comparing him to her like her good husband that she really you know the one that she really liked and That's she's right. like he's you know he reminds me of this I'm like what does that mean yeah you know because like since she's starting to know that he's not particularly kind person yes what is she what well, I just am interested what I wish Octavia had yeah. told us a little bit more about what she might be going on for her because I think if I had those powers I don't know. The first thing I would want to do is just navigate that. Like, I need to turn this person into like a really expert vibrator, like <laughs> in mm, human form. Exactly. I'm so, like, mm. so I don't be tripping because, like, I don't need it to come up all in my heart and like start make me thinking weird. So I need this person to be of service because yes. I'm interested in that. And then I think also once that she has figured out that he is interested in her people. And that she has to be like, you can't have my children. That's right. I wonder what she was doing with his possibilities of getting her pregnant. Because, you know, I I would be like, you know, we're just not going to allow this to happen. So everything that could possibly do that. I don't know if she has those powers. I mean, we find out. But the Right. Because she can sense so much. And I've always appreciated this aspect of Octavia's writing that Anyanwu can sense so much but that she still has these spots where it's it's not clear to her, where she can't quite figure it out. And I've never had a child, and I mostly don't deal with men. So I've always been mystified by the the thing you see happen where a woman will know someone 
is a threat to their children and still be able to feel attraction to them, mm-hmm. um, still be able to feel intimacy and even love with them. It's always been, you know, like really, I'm like, oh, I, I don't understand it. And I don't even judge it because I'm like, there's there's clearly something there. There's so many women that have experienced this across time and space and multiple generations. And, you know, like patriarchy in some ways would not work if that had not gotten in there, into the programming, mm-hmm. right? But it always astounds me um, when I witness that. And it it always astounds me on the page here because I'm like, Anyanwu can feel, you know, a fever in herself and put it out, but can't feel the the true danger of this person yet in that mm-hmm. way. Um, even as she starts to to see examples of it, she can still lay down with him at night. And I just find it all so interesting at this this point. And it makes me ask the next question, which is, what do you see as Anyanwu's motivation throughout this chapter? Mm-hmm. Right? Like, yes, she's keeping her people safe, but there feels like there's more motivation there. What do you think those motivations are? And if you see sacrifices here, what are the sacrifices you see her already making? Mm-hmm. Does it feel like home, leaving home is a sacrifice for her, leaving her people? Does that feel like a sacrifice? Is the sleeping with him part of her sacrifice? Just asking. I definitely think that your last question and this one are connected because I think it's of of like why would somebody, you know, lay with somebody dangerous? And, yes. you know, and I do think that there's a lot of like navigating safety. How can you, when you're with someone who is dangerous, like as you're starting to learn what that means, like what are the ways that you are protecting yourself, finding vulnerability in the other person, um, learning your situation when she starts to see what he's capable of, like how much of it is her really going, okay, I don't need to be in constant conflict with this person because I do need to be in conflict with them sometimes. Yes. All of the this, the swirl of different things happening must be immense, you know, but I love also that Octavia doesn't solve everything for you. And then I think also she's seen him in, in action. Yeah. So that ha- whatever way he goes from one body to the next, she will never stop. Like, at least at this point, she will never stop. Like, it happens so fast. Yes. You know, so I do think that that, that's Mm. happening. But this is a great question. Yeah, I mean, I... Like, already now, the time has gotten weird and the layers have gotten weird. Already. It's like, already... I feel like, I don't want to rush the readers on this. I don't want to rush the readers on this. But I feel like... You can tell almost immediately when a relationship begins if it's got abusive elements to it. And we can delude ourselves about that or call it passion or call it other things. But I feel like that's a lot of what's happening here too, is Mm -hmm. as soon as she has met him, in a way she starts to feel responsible for him, Mm -hmm. for what his choices are and what his impact is. And I think that is one of the markers of an abusive relationship. It's like, I've got to protect this person and I've got to protect the world from this person and you know yeah, all that. she's working a lot. Yeah. I got to protect myself from him. Yep. You know, let me cook this food and yeah. let me keep these wounds clean and you know. Exactly. Yeah. And a question I have here is is there any way for Anyanwu to protect her children 
without unveiling how much they mean to her, which in some way greatly endangers them. You know, it's like the more you get to know Doro, the more you understand that he is a strategist constantly leveraging mm-hmm. whatever he needs to leverage to get what he wants. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it, you know, the moment when Anyanu stops in the woods and is like, you shall not touch my children. I'm like, both, yes, stand up for that. And also don't let him know that they matter to you yeah. that way. Like both things, <laughs> you know, I'm like, don't tell him they're healthy. Don't mm-hmm. tell him they live. But there's no way for her to do that. You know, and up till now, she's been the strongest, most capable person she's met. Um, And she still is face to face with him. She still is like, it's just that the gift he has is one that there's nothing else she can do about. So Mm -hmm. I feel a big question here, uh, just because we just finished the parables and we're moving into this, which is what are the similarities in Octavia's protagonists? Um, Just looking at Olamina Mm. and looking at Anyanwu here, because I feel like Anyanwu in some ways starts like you know, where Olamina was heading. So the stealth, the survival skills, the foraging, the empathy, really take note of as many things as you can find between them that feel like they're in relationship to each other. Because I think there's a lot. Mm-hmm. That's great. That's fun. Yeah, it's fun. I'm just like, right, like different universes, but so much overlap here. Yeah. And I wonder, you know, always... Was Octavia writing something for herself or writing writing a wish or a vision for herself? Mm-hmm. The next question I have is, is Anyanwu free? Is Anyanwu free? Like when we meet her, is she free? Like from the moment she comes in contact with Doro, is she free? Is she ever free again? Do we think that at any point she believes that Doro is offering her a kind of freedom or partnership or anything of equality and or is Anyamu delusional? Hmm. Mm-hmm. Ooh. I mm-hmm. don't know. Well, mm-hmm. I don't think she's delusional as much mm-hmm. as I think she's aware. Like mm-hmm. I would like think about how she takes something into her body and then she makes a decision. Yeah. And I think that she's taking this into her body. And she's going, you know, all right, I'm holding it in my mouth. Yes. And I'm like learning the ingredients. Yeah. And, you know, I just think it's the biggest, most gigantic thing she's ever had to try to make sense of. Yeah, I agree with that. Like, I think it's also something truly new, Mm -hmm. which for an ancient soul, I imagine would be thrilling and scary and you know a lot of things would happen there but it's truly new i don't think she's delusional about doro's nature that much you know after that first night together Mm -hmm. i do think she might be delusional in thinking that she can manage him in any way and i think it's the kind of delusion that we all put ourselves through dealing with something that is powerful and and moves towards death very quickly and easily mm-hmm. is that we think we can manage it. We think we can set boundaries with it for longer than we maybe should. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, hopefully soon that she will be out of that. I'm like, Come on, girl. <laughs> okay. Um, now this move, we, we laughed about this as we were reading it, but it's just like, uh, so impregnation as a power over move is mm-hmm. uh, like patriarchy, Playbook 101. And I want to ask 
our readers, our listeners, does this feel familiar to you? Have you witnessed this in your own life? Have you witnessed this in your family, in your community? Do you see it happening in our nation? Do you understand that that is a lot of what's behind the quote-unquote pro-life movement, Mm -hmm. um, which I see as the, you know, pro-woman-hating movement, um, (laughs) you know, pro-control movement. If you have time and space to do a little journaling around this or a little writing around this, Mm -hmm. if you do see it in your life, if you're like, oh, this happened in my family, or I see that this happened, you know, this has happened to a lineage of women in my family, see if you can imagine other stories for those women, just as a gift. Imagine other stories for those people who who pregnancy was able to negotiate them into a place where they surrendered some of their power or maybe mm. all of their power for their lives and just give the gift of imagining some some other paths there. It feels important as we look back. It feels important as we look forward. Yes. Yeah. Have you seen this in your life, Toshi? Yes, definitely. Yeah. yeah. Definitely, I mean... I mean, I see it, I've seen it personally, and then I'm witnessing it now. Yeah. And I think it's, um, it's really horrific. I always like, why does it always feel like people who can get pregnant are on their own? You know, why isn't it like the people who can impregnate people? Why aren't their voices so, so loud and so in support of this? Like, it's really lacking. I actually started to think like, oh, we we just don't care. Like, because maybe it's just the responsibility is on the person who has been impregnated, like, and not the person who did it. And that person has immense power to make sure that that doesn't happen. And why aren't they taking that responsibility super, super seriously in these dangerous times? Um, that's right. You know, it's going to like everything about care can't be a law. And I think like people are like, well, where's the law for, for like men if they do this and if they do that. And I'm like, no, we don't want a fucking law. We want a a mode of, of, uh, yeah, we want a culture and a mode of participating with each other that, that is not like risking our very beings. And I think this book is, is really right on time. It really will help us like express these ideas around living in a situation that is very, very dangerous. And what, what do you have that can antidote some of the dangerous situations? It's the same That's with right. COVID. Like we are going to get all these laws around a vaccine. You know, they don't, they literally don't have all the answers. They don't know what they're doing and making decisions. They don't have all the studies. They're literally fighting in public, the White House and the CDC and the FDA. They're having fight right now in public. But if we were like, they don't have the answer, therefore we have to not give each other COVID. Yeah. And what is the practice that we have at our fingertips in order to do that? Let's do that together. Yeah. Then that's... (laughs) That's the, that's the answer. That would be such that would be a it, different you know, way. So it's such a different way. And most of our, most of our restorative justice, everything will come down to these, this way of thinking, which I don't think is going to be easy, but that's it. And I think yeah. with that, you know, Texas would be losing 
in such a big way. And these people in Texas that are trying to act like they are running a government and they're doing everything. <laughs> but but it's same people that let everybody freeze because they're trying to make money off of the electricity. It's the same right. people. They are not in the business of, of governing and taking care of people. And so they don't deserve their jobs. Um, no. So... Is, yeah, all of the things that you just talked about, Toshi, really resonate. And I, I also, I really feel that this fight between Doro and Anyanwu, and the fight over how powerful it is to be able to bear life, whether you choose to bear life or not bear life, like holding the power of that capacity, mm-hmm. it's like unbearable to those who can't bear life. <laughs> that mm-hmm. someone else has this power that they don't have and can't have. And I think most of our gender dynamics throughout history are rooted in that jealousy or that anger or something rather than partnering with it. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, I will control that. Like if I can't do that, I will control that. Mm-hmm. And it's always so violent. I think we're mired in it still so deeply both at an interpersonal level. I think there's so many interpersonal relationships where there's a rage that gets evoked um, in people when they, I think, really have to see the power of divine force that comes through with a new life. Mm-hmm. And I have been reading, you know, so many different things, but, you know, how it takes nine months to bring a life into the world. And so just how often that can happen versus the amount of time it takes to um, ejaculate sperm and how many times that can happen and how many people can get (laughs) impregnated and how like if we really, really wanted to control pregnancy, it would be a vasectomy conversation, Mm. not an abortion conversation. That's right. And so that in just sheer numbers really points to this has nothing to do with actually Mm-hmm. Uh, trying to control pregnancy or control yeah, population right. or anything like that. It, I mean, it's really about controlling that power of life. And it's not life that we're going to protect. You know, like as we're recording this, we're in the window of data that is like now one in 500 Americans has died of COVID. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's not like people arrive and we start making great decisions about protecting those lives that come into the world. And we could do a whole show just on <laughs> the statistics of not caring. Yeah. Um, and in some way, Doro is the American of this story. Doro is the U.S. Mm-hmm. character in this story. And I just want that to be clear from get-go. Doro is so flippant about the value of life. Everything is collateral damage for him. Mm-hmm. And I want to ask you all to reflect on how old Doro feels. Like when he's in these moments, you know, we know that he is ancient mm. But how old does he feel? Does he feel like a petulant child? Does he feel like a kind of disgruntled teenager? Like, how old does he feel to you? And what might that give you as a reflection of our nation? Mm -hmm. And I want people to attend to the pattern of ancients in young bodies. We see this in many ways in this story. It's another theme of Octavia's. It's one of her faves. Um, Mm -hmm. You'll see it in other works of hers. And just reflect a little bit, what do you make of this? This combination that she likes to create for us of wisdom existing in a young and capable, virile, athletic body. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then I have two last questions. How does Doro's voice sound in your head? Hmm. <laughs> Do you have a sense of Doro's voice, Toshi, as a as a sound goddess? Yeah, I feel like it's kind of like reading comic books. You know, when you read a book, comic book, like, you know, then you see the dialogue and then you start placing the voices. Yes. I think like in terms of like how he sounds, I think he sounds like whatever anybody thinks he sounds like. Uh-huh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I think he's less of a sound and more of a telepathic resident. Mm-hmm. You know, so I don't know if I can hear him as much as I, what he says is actually like hits the mind. That's, and, I love that way of yeah. saying it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I always think of him as a frequency. Mm-hmm. So it's like, however the actual voice of the person he's the body he's occupying is there's a frequency in him that is operating at a different pace and years ago i heard this recording that was like i think grasshoppers hmm. and it was it had taken grasshoppers and slowed down you know cuz grasshoppers live a very short life and it would slowed down it had taken a grasshopper's life and a human life and done that comparison and then slowed the grasshopper recording down such that it matched the pace of a human life. Um, Mm. I don't know if that makes, I hope that makes sense. Yeah. And basically when it was slowed down, it sounds like the grasshoppers are singing. Alleluia, alleluia, alleluia. You know, Mm. it sounds like a chorus singing alleluia. Mm. And, it makes me think of that with Doro's voice that I'm like, the frequency that he operates at is so much vaster than all the humans he interacts with. Like mm. our frequency would be much faster because our lives are much shorter. And then he's this immortal. And so I think there's something there in the frequency of his voice that you hear that's like, oh, that would be like a voice of God if you didn't know, mm. you know, if you had never interacted with a divine force before. So it feels like, though, when he talks, if she doesn't understand the language he's speaking in, she can't hear him. Well, I feel like she can still hear him, but there's a way that he can move between languages. And particularly, Mm -hmm. I think they're foreshadowing because he keeps speaking in English. Right. Right. So I think that there's this foreshadowing where she's like, I don't understand what that is. You know, what is that? What do you say? Because where we are. You know, Octavia's so brilliant. <laughs> There's layers mm. here because what, what we're understanding is slavery was happening in her area, but she'd never heard English. Mm-hmm. And there's a critique. There's so much in there about That's how right. slavery ha- actually happened and how landing in amongst English-speaking people was like the last stage or the last step of slavery, not the first. It's not like people came over like, you're my slave now. Like, it was like... There was so much internal betrayal and intertribal betrayal. And there was so much happening there where slavery was already in motion. Yeah. But then it got, you know, connected to the great colonial capitalist experiment of the U.S. And the rest Mm -hmm. is history. But I I see what she was doing there. She was. It's almost like you hear these English words. You need to run for your life. I was like, girl, you need to go. Um, So then the last question I have here is just to reflect on what does Anyanwu learn about herself and her magic in the face of Doro in this mm. chapter, you know? 
And have you had ever a similar awakening or a similar facing where you're like, I'm the most powerful witch I know. (laughs) And then you come across something that you can't figure out how to cast a spell around, you know, Mm. Um, (laughs) you know, just, just notice that. I think of it as a humbling, humbling that happens here. All right. Chapter two. Landing on that note. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, some things you cannot do. All right. Um, Yeah. I mean, I want us to just be all up in this. Either this, I think everything about this book is like humility and then what strategies emerge from humility. And if you cannot accept the conditions you're in and find the humility, you're never going to actually find the strategy that moves towards life. All right. So I want to, that to me is one of the most interesting aspects of these books. And I I hope that y'all will join us in, you know, we're trying to figure, I think this is one of the great things we're figuring out right now as a species. It's like, how can we be humble to the truth of our conditions and the power we're actually dealing with? Um, which is, which holds our extinction in its teeth and Mm. how can we strategize towards life inside of that? All right. You know, Octavia's Parables is hosted by myself, Adrian Marie Brown, and my favorite, Toshi Regan. You're my favorite, Toshi. Our show art is from Krista Franklin. (laughs) um, And you've probably also seen us. We've been posting the one of the original covers of Wild Seed all over the place. And the artist who did that work is named Wayne Barlow. Um, it's worth looking at for a long time. It's absolutely a beautiful oh, cover of Shapeshifting. We are transcribed by Jess Pinkham, and you can find us on... Oh, and we are produced by Kat Aaron, the great, the wonderful Kat Aaron. You can find us on Twitter at Oparables. You can become a supporter of this podcast at patreon.com slash Oparables. And the transcripts for every episode that we do on any of our shows lives at readingoctavia.com. Music for Octavia's Parables podcast, the Wild Seed edition, is You Don't Know the Time, written and performed by Toshi Regan, and the Sower Song, performed by the cast of Octavia E. Butler's Parable of the Sower, live at Memorial Hall, Chapel Hill, North Carolina. We'll see you next time. Yeah, yeah. A sower went out to sow her seed. A sower went out to sow her seed.